part one of a journey through the steps with Carver B. from Hattiesburg, Mississippi at the Birmingham, Alabama Grace Fellowship Fall Retreat, October 11, 2014. All right, how's everybody doing? Uh, I, I, want, I get the privilege uh, to introduce a good friend of mine and anybody who has had the pleasure of the 45-day vacation in Hattiesburg, Mississippi knows this individual. Uh, this man is truly gifted and uh, has helped a great many people just by him being alive. Uh, he would have this great habit of walking into treatment, uh, which is a difficult place to be. Uh, and Carver was always happy, always had a smile on his face, was always encouraging, uh, but also knew what it was like to be in treatment. He is a seasoned veteran of treatment himself, and uh, he will, I'm sure, tell you bits and pieces of that along the way. I have learned more about the steps from this man than I have from anybody else, and I've been at this for a minute, and, uh, but I have learned so much from Carver, and uh, I'm so thrilled that he gets to be here today and you get to learn from him. Uh, this workshop is a fantastic thing. Uh, and, and he will tell you the origins of it as he goes, and you will laugh, you will cry, it'll be better than cats. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm telling you, I like to set high bars for people when it's not me. Uh, so <laughs> here is my friend and soon-to-be-yours, Carver B. Well, well hey, everybody, I'm Carver. I'm a, I'm a sex addict. And, a, and an alcoholic and a drug addict and a codependent and I've got an eating disorder. Uh, I'm a hot mess. <laughs> and I, I think I'm in the right place. I'm just glad to be here with all you guys. This is a truly, it's an honor uh, to be here, to think, you know, what recovery has done that I can be where I was and now be here today and uh, be a part of this wonderful group. I'm, I'm just, I'm so honored and, and touched. I want to thank, uh, I want to thank Jim so much for inviting me to come and the committee that was responsible for this. And of course, my good friend, Tao. And uh, I'm just grateful for all of you that have come so far, short distances and long to be here. It's just a great honor for me. Uh, could we pause? Would it be okay if we paused just for a second and did the serenity prayer? Would that be okay? This would be a big help to me. And the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, I am just thrilled uh, to be here with you. The thing that we're going to do today is based on a book called Back to Basics. And this was written by a friend of mine uh, named Wally P. And uh, Wally wrote this book. Uh, it's available on Amazon and all kinds of Hazleton has it. And then um, I'd be glad to share with you Wally's uh, website, uh, which is uh, www.aa backtobasics.org. And, uh, and so Wally is an uh, Alcoholics Anonymous archivist. Now you guys know that the origins of recovery as we know it began in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and you guys know that it began uh, in the mid-1930s 
Did y'all know that? You know, there was kind of an accidental meeting uh, by two guys, one of them a, 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 a doctor and, and, a, and a businessman, and they met in Akron, Ohio, kind of by accident. And these two shared. One guy had, you know, a whopping several months of sobriety. And he shared all his experience and wisdom and hope with another guy. And, and, and that wasn't when AA was actually born. You know, AA was then born when those two guys carried the message to another addict. That's the key to this whole thing is getting what we know and being willing to carry that on to somebody else. Now, that's the powerful piece of business of the 12 steps. So, you know, as, as the steps go on, you know, and Alcoholics Anonymous started to grow, then in the mid-1940s, groups started popping up, and there's something in AA's big book that discusses the fellowships in the mid-1940s, and there's this quote out of the book in the, the, the forward to the second edition describing AA in the 1940s. It says, of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, does this sound familiar to anybody? 50% got sober at once and remained that way. What the? 25 sobered up after some relapses and among the remainder of those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. Now I'm going to offer you up something. What the heck happened? Right? Are we seeing that kind of success rate over addiction today? No. Well, what, what in the heck were they doing in the 1940s that was so successful that we ain't doing today? And what can we learn by that? And what sort of a adoption could we make to those procedures that could help us see those kind of recovery rates today? Let me tell you one of the things they were doing in the 1940s. They had this phenomenon called beginner meetings. So let's say that you're a newcomer and you want to join a fellowship. Before you can go into an open sharing meeting like we know it today, the first thing you had to do was be invited. See, you know, today we have these open sharing meetings and just anybody can walk in and share. That's why the rooms of 12-step recovery are no hotbed of mental help. You guys been going to meetings, right? Yeah, y'all y'all know what I'm talking about, right? They'll just let anybody in there and just say anything. They were not doing this in the 1940s. In the 1940s, if you were a beginner, they would say, you wanna, you're a newcomer, you want to come to the meeting? Oh, we got a beginner meeting for you. Come over here to the beginner meeting. At that beginner meeting, you were assigned a sponsor. Oh. In that first meeting, in that one-hour session, you took the first three steps in a group of people with your new sponsor. Between the next week's meeting, you and your sponsor stayed in communication with each other. At the second session, you returned and you did an inventory together in a group with a bunch of people. Over the course of the next week, you shared your inventory with your sponsor. That was the fifth step. You came back for the third session and you did steps six 
through nine, and then in between that session, you went out and knocked out a couple of amends with your sponsor. Then you came back the next week, and in a group, same group, you did 10, 11, and 12. At the end of that, you come back the next week. Guess what you are the next week? You're a sponsor. You nailed it. You're going to now sit with a newcomer, and you're going to take him through the same process you went through. And after you've done all of that, then you are invited to join the fellowship. No wonder it was so successful. Because they were culling the herd. (laughs) Right? Those who were insincere, those who didn't really want this way of life, those that kind of, you know, just not really thought that maybe they would try it on their own, they just kind of drifted away through that process. But those who, see, before you joined the fellowship, you had a sponsor, have already taken the steps, and you're already helping somebody else. No wonder it was so successful. And slowly over time, these sort of practices dissolve. Now, my friend Wally wrote a book, and in this book, he has discovered the original format of those AA beginner meetings. Now, you and I know that the solution is the same no matter what fellowship we attend, right? Did you know there's over 200 anonymous fellowships that practice the 12 Steps? It's for everything. I'm just saying, you got a problem? Here's some steps (laughs) that can help you with it, right? And so there's over 200 of them for us to have identification, right? Now, some are sicker than others, like me. I qualify for 137. (laughs) Who's got the time? (laughs) So I'm a grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm also a member of Al-Anon. I attend SAA meetings as a member. And I'm also a member of ACA. Anybody? Adult children of alcoholics. I grew up in an alcoholic home. The apple did not fall far from the tree. See what I'm saying? And so, so I have found healing uh, and transformation in this. Now, if you guys are willing, I am willing to take you through these four one-hour sessions today. I'm willing to take you through all the steps today just like they did in the 1940s. I'm willing to be in community with you today and see some healing take place in this very room. I believe there's going to be transformation. Y'all want to do that? Yes, absolutely. Let's do it together. How about that? All right, now, what we'll do is, I'll take you through the steps real quickly. I will lead us up. We'll do, we'll take a break, and then we'll do an inventory together. How about that? Whoa, I'm just saying. And then, over lunch, we'll partner up and share our inventories with somebody. How about that? That'll be our fifth step, and then we'll come back after lunch. We'll knock out... Six through nine, we'll talk about the amends process. We'll do 10, 11, and 12. We'll do a guided meditation in this room and share our guidance. How about that? We'll talk about carrying the message, and we're going to see some healing right here today, right here in this room. Are y'all in? Yes. What else you doing? Come on. (laughs) Got a plan B. That's what I'm saying. 
All right, so you guys know men work with men, women work with women, right? So we first of all need to get sharing partners. So would all the ladies please stand up? Now, some of us are here and you've got somebody that you're willing to be a sharing partner with, right? That you're willing to share the steps with or something. And maybe you don't know some. This is what I would ask you to do. Would each of you just kind of look around the room and try to find somebody that you'd be willing to share your inventory with? And if you would point to that person and the two of you nod and then you just pair up and sit down. So if you look around the room, find somebody that looks like you could share with them. And it's okay that you might not know them so well. It's okay. We're just going to share the things that are bothering us today. So if you guys, three, three could work together. If you wanted to stay in a group of three, that would be fine. But if you'll keep standing, look around the room, keep standing until you find somebody. When you find somebody, you point, nod, and sit down. Okay? So is everybody, have we still got somebody here? Is this, are you still standing? Or this, did you find somebody? I don't sit either. And so all, for all of us nervous types, we can take the steps too. Okay, so did everybody, hey, so everybody, did you guys find a sharing partner? Okay, let's give them a big hand. This is a big deal. This, this was a study in socialization. And the ladies passed. Now let's do the hard cases. Gentlemen, please stand. <laughs> These are the hard cases. You know, you notice that we do ladies first. That's because we're geniuses up here. So you men will want to do the same thing. I want you to look around. I want you to find somebody that you could share with. I want you to point to them. I want you to nod. And then I want you to sit down. Keep looking around the room until you find somebody. Find somebody that you're willing to share with. You point to them. You nod. And then you sit down. Keep looking. Keep looking. Until you find somebody. Okay, we got we got you two. Okay, good. And we got one. Did you find somebody? This is nothing short of a minor miracle. Let's give the men a big hand. Okay, so you know what we're going to do at lunchtime when we hit the break? We're going to take our inventories, we're going to go off to lunch, we're going to find our sharing partners, and we're going to share our inventories. Everybody got it? Okay, you want to start at the beginning? Has everybody got a big book? This is an oxymoron. It's a big book. You think we're dealing with grandiose people? I mean, War and Peace, that's a big book. Well, anyway, so here's a big book. And has everybody got a highlighter? You know, I don't know about you, but it helps me to follow along. Because, you know, there was something in the, there's something in AA, uh, in the archives of AA, that Dr. Bob, who's one of the co-founders of the first 12-step fellowship, said, the big book is too complicated for newcomers. Anybody agree with that? It's kind of a complex piece of business in some sense. So what Dr. Bob believed was that if we would extract key passages out of this and just focus on some of these key passages, that we could then take the steps and then later go back and work the steps in more detail. This is a is a, one of the processes of recovery in the 1930s and 1940s is 
We take the steps quickly and often. We take the steps quickly and often. Okay? So, if you've got a big book and you got a highlighter, turn to the forward right here in the front. Very first of the book. It's, it's like on page 3, and I think it says Roman numeral 13. So right now we realize we're dealing with deeply damaged people. <laughs> Can't even get the Roman numerals right. I love them already. Okay, so we're going to learn about the fellowships. Now, one thing you might say before we start is you might say, now, wait a minute, why in the heck are we using the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, that's not even a thing for me, right? I ain't here because of that. I'm here for something else or this or that or the other. Why are we using this book? Well, that'd be a, that's a good observation. I'll tell you, you would be right to say, well, this book is about alcohol and alcoholism. How's that going to help me? I want you to think of this book in another way. I want you to think about this book as an instruction manual for how to take the 12 steps. If we extract the passages out of this book that discuss a step and tell us how to take a step, then we're going to be able to take the steps together. Make sense? And so that's what we've done. That's what Wally's book is. We've pulled the, the pieces of the book that discuss the steps and tell us how to take the steps. All right, so starting at the very beginning, and my buddy Tal, I think, is going to help me. He's, he's nodding, so that, that's a good sign. All right, so starting with the very first line of the, of, the, of the foreword, here's what it says. We of Alcoholics Anonymous, or any other 12-step fellowship, are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics or addicts precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So what's the purpose of the book? Show us how to recover. That's right. And it describes what is wrong with us as a seemingly hopeless state. Now, who in this room, whether you have an addiction, have a problem, or love someone that has had an addiction or had a problem, how many of us in this room can identify with the notion of, at times, that circumstance feels at times hopeless? Raise your hand. See, right there we can already identify. Describes the hopelessness in two ways, mind and body. And I don't know about you family members. I grew up in an addicted home. I know that when I'm around the, the tension of being with someone in active addiction, I can feel it in my shoulders, the tension. And, of course, those of us in active addiction have been. We know that we bodily change, right? We bodily change. So there's some identification. Hey, look at the very last line on that same page. Now we're going to describe the fellowships. Tal? We are not an organization in the conventional sense of the word. There are no fees or dues whatsoever. The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking or acting out. We are not allied with any particular faith, sect, or denomination, nor do we oppose anyone. 
We simply wish to be helpful to those who are afflicted. Okay, pause right there. So let's kind of break that down just for a second. So those of us in the these anonymous fellows, you know, one thing that we learn about addicts right there in that passage, we learn that addicts lie. Because when that was written, it wasn't over 100, it was 87. <laughs> Even in the 1930s, addicts was lying. <laughs> Who saw that coming? <laughs> well, all of us. <laughs> okay, so, but breaking that down, what do we learn by that? Well, we learn this. Those of us who join or are members of any anonymous fellowship, we're not a religion. Don't get involved in science, politics, or medicine. We're just a bunch of people who were trying to be helpful to those who got what we got. That's why there's over 200 different anonymous fellowships for the purpose of identification. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So if you're like me, you don't go rushing out joining something unless they got something good to offer. I did not join Amazon Prime for nothing. (laughs) Free shipping. Right? Well, what have these guys got to offer? Right? It's on page 17. So turn in the book to page 17. And this is chapter 2. Yep. Page 17. And when you get all the way to the bottom, do you see the last paragraph where it starts the tremendous fact? Yeah. Start highlight right there and Tal's going to read it to us. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism or any other addiction or compulsive behavior. All right, let's pause right there. All right, so what is that telling us? Well, what's the title of the chapter? That's what it's telling us. It's telling us that there is a solution to this problem that has brought us into the rooms of recovery. And it's a solution that's been around for a long, long time, and it's helped millions of people, bazillions of people all over the world, and it saved my life too. How about that? Well, now do you guys know about the disease model of addiction? Have y'all heard about that? You know, addiction fits a disease model. And and alcoholism is the kind of the mother of all addictions, fits a disease model, of course. And the American Medical Association, way back in the 1950s, determined that alcoholism fit this disease. It operated the same way as a disease. And later on, come to realize the medical community did, that many different addictive patterns also fit a disease model. And you know, it's kind of like, it's like diabetes, right? So the first thing that happens if you got diabetes is you start having symptoms, right? Start having symptoms and maybe you're like thirsty or maybe you have feelings in your extremities or maybe you're dizzy. You go to a professional and a professional assess you and says, I have run some tests and we have a diagnosis. You have diabetes. And you might go, oh crap. 
And the doc says, oh no, this is okay. There's many people that are living wonderful, productive, healthy lives with diabetes, but because we're just going to give you a treatment plan. And if you follow this plan, then your life is going to be just great. The plan might include diet, exercise, and depending on what your pancreas is doing, it might be some medication. But if you follow that plan, what's going to happen to your symptoms? Go away. Go away. And what's going to be the long-term prognosis? Good health. Yeah, good health. Now, think about uh, addiction is the same way. Each of us, even family members, start exhibiting symptoms. symptoms. We Many of us have gone to places like Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and we get assessed by some professionals, and they say, we've seen this before. <laughs> this is not new. You have not made up something. It's addiction. And you go, oh crap. <laughs> My life is over. And they go, oh, no, 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 we've seen this many times before. Oh, no, no, we're going to give you a treatment. And if you follow the treatment, your life is going to get, and your symptoms are going to. Of course, if you stop applying the treatment plan, your symptoms are going to. And your life is going to get. With a vengeance, yeah, your life's going to get worse. And the long-term prognosis, if you continue to apply the plan, the long-term prognosis is because it's fatal. It's fatal. Just just like that. See the, see the thing? Well, these guys back in the 1930s had this already figured out. It took the medical community a long time to figure it out. These guys knew it. And they listed the symptomologies of addiction here in the book. And they did it in a chapter called The Doctor's Opinion. So, if you'll go back to the front of the book, find the doctor's opinion, and it's like, it's on Roman numeral 28, which is like page 7. I love addicts. Love them. Just love them. If you go back to Roman numeral 28, that's XXVIII, and if you go back to that, and if you'll find the last paragraph on that page, does it say men and women? Yep. Oh, well, then we're on the right spot. So starting with men and women, Tal, what does it say? Well, Carver, uh, men and women drink or act out excessively because they like the effect produced by alcohol or their behavior. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic or addicted life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks or behaviors uh, which they see others taking with impunity. All right, let's pause right there, all right? So, so there's a bunch. That has got content, content, content in it. And, I, and we, could, we could break that down for the longest of time. I want to point out just one thing. The symptoms of untreated addiction. Did you notice, if you've got a pen, circle or underline restless, irritable, and discontented. Isn't that the truth, whether you have an addiction or whether you love somebody that has an addiction? Don't we go through the same symptomology? 
aren't we then restless? Aren't we then irritable? And can't we just lose our way? And even life itself just doesn't make sense at times. This, if you like to write out in the margin, you could write the symptoms of untreated addiction. How about that? These guys were geniuses. All right, so going back, three lines down from the top of the next page where we left off, what's it say next? After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree. Yippee! Emerging remorseful oh, with a no. firm resolution not to drink or act out I again. swear I will never do that again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. You know, this is good news and bad news. Good news is, okay, there is a solution. I just need to have a psychic change. The bad news is, where on Yahoo do I get one? What aisle at Wally World do they sell the psychic change? And when can I get it at a discount? Because I do not pay retail. Just don't do it. There's no spiritual energy in it. Well, hang on. There's more. So more of the symptoms of addiction turn to page 44. This, on page 44, and this is going to be chapter 4, is one of the clearest, most concise descriptions of addiction I may have ever read. It's chapter 4, page 44, and it's four lines down from the top of the page where it says, if, when. Start highlighting right there as my buddy Tal reads. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking or behaving, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. So let's pause and look at that. So if I've tried to quit doing whatever it is, a behavior, a substance, controlling other people, if I've promised myself I'm going to let them go and I seem to have the inability to do that, or if I've tried to control my behavior and I've had an inability to do that, this represents a problem. Everybody agree? Here's the solution. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Well, now there they go. All right, so they've changed, they've changed the psychic change, and now they're calling it a spiritual experience. Yes, it's like, I tell you what, it leaves me with the same dilemma. Where on Yahoo do I get a spiritual experience? You know, how do you have that? Well, the truth is, the steps actually promise it. Look over to page 59. This is where the steps are all listed. Do you all see page 59? And there's one, two, three, four, all the steps. You know, we're going to admit something, and we're going to be, you know, we're going to believe something, and we're going to make a decision all the way. And then flip the page over to 60, and see, there's the 12 step. So... The 12 steps actually promise you a spiritual experience. Look at the 12th step. It says having what? 
had one. So get this. You don't even have to work all 12 steps to get one. All you got to do is 1 through 11, and by the time you get to 12, you will have already had one. I just knocked off a step for you. <laughs> We're one twelfth of the way and ain't even got started good. How about that? Okay, you don't seem overly excited. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. All right, go back, go back to where we were. So now, you, do you realize that we are going over and over powerlessness? Do you recognize that? I mean, everything we have read is pointing our finger right at. But you know this, that the first step is not just powerless. There's a second part of the first step, and that is... Exactly. So what's the symptoms of unmanageability? Well, turn to page 52. Page 52. Do y'all realize that this is jumping all over the place? Who put this together? A bunch of algies or something? Oh, that's right. It was addicts. Oh, okay. Now it makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Don't you think at some time someone might have said, I have an idea. Let's organize the material. <laughs> Chapter one. Step one. <laughs> oh, no. Let's call it we agnostics. Okay. Um, I love addicts. You got to love us. We take the solution, bury it in the book. I love it. We hide it. Oh, yeah, we hide it. Okay, so page 52, find the second full paragraph. It's right in the middle of the page. And find the second sentence. Do you see where it says we were having trouble? And if you like to make notes, this is the symptoms of unmanageability. Okay? Symptoms of, or another, said another way, the symptoms of an unmanageable life. Tao, what's it say? We were having trouble with personal relationships. Okay, they had me right there. There you go. I didn't have to read any further. Okay, could trouble with personal? Okay, that's me. Okay, bingo. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Now, can you identify with any of that? You know, and the reality is, if you can identify with any one of those things, that, my friend, represents the unmanageable life. And I'll tell you a secret, you can work the steps just on unmanageability. You don't got to be an addict to work the steps. You just got to have any one of the symptoms of unmanageability work the entire program on that item of unmanageability or several, and you will find relief because there is a solution. That is the truth. What about loneliness? Any isolators in the bunch? Oh, my brothers and sisters. Turn to page 151. Page 151, it's about three-fourths, maybe two-thirds of the way back. It's chapter 11, second paragraph. You see where it says the less people tolerated us? Start highlighting right there and Tal's going to read. The less people tolerated us, the more we withdrew from society, from life itself. As we became subjects of king alcohol or king addiction, shivering denizens of his mad realm 
The chilling vapor that is loneliness settled down. It thickened, ever becoming blacker. Some of us sought out sordid places, hoping to find understanding, companionship, and approval. Momentarily we did. Then would come oblivion and the awful awakening to face the hideous four horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. Unhappy drinkers, or addicts, who read this page will understand. Do any of us understand? Boy, I sure understand. Hey, you know what? I think it's time to take the first step. Do you guys want to take the first step? Turn to page 30. The directions are in the book. Let's look at the, let's look at the directions and see what it says. Page 30. This is chapter 3, second paragraph. Starts with, we learned. Tal, what's it say, buddy? We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics or addicts. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. You know, the same thing is true of family members. We just had to admit that we were powerless over loving somebody that has this disease or that we had to admit that we were powerless over one of those things of unmanageability even. But I tell you, I, I remember so clearly, I was, I was about two weeks out of a treatment center and I was sitting at a coffee shop uh, outside of a bookstore in Jackson, Mississippi. I was sitting with, I'd gotten a sponsor by then and I was sitting with my sponsor. He had told me to come to the coffee shop on a Saturday morning and bring my big book. And we read these passages together and read this step one passage together. And he looked up at me and he says, you know, I'm going to ask you the first step question. And he says, all that's required is you just to answer with a yes or a no. And just like he asked me, I'm going to ask you the first step question. Would you guys be willing to answer me out loud with a yes or a no? Well, here's the first step question. Are you guys at a place in your life that you're willing to concede that you got this thing or that you love somebody that has this thing and that you could identify with one of the symptomologies of unmanageability that we read? What's your answer? Yes. Say it like you mean it. Yes. Everybody that said yes just took the first step and nothing more is required. <laughs> Give yourselves a big hand. This is a big day. The first step is a simple admission that you guys just made and nothing more is required. You know, we take the first step over and over again. My sponsor told me one of the most important things I could do for my recovery was to start my mornings with a prayer. He said, I want you every morning. He asked me, he says, can you do this? And I said, I, yeah, I'm going to, I think I can do it. He says, I want you to pray every morning on your knees in this way. God, please help me stay sober today. He says, it's the beginning and ending of recovery. He says, it's the single most important thing that you can do for your recovery is pray. That little, quick, short prayer. He says, you know, now why are you down there if you want to throw in the Our Father or you want to pray for somebody or you want to pray for something else? That's all good and well, too. But he says, I'm telling you, you must in this way say that prayer. He looked me dead in the eye and he says, can you do it? Will you do it? And I said, well, 
I'll, I'll do it. He said, yeah, 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 but here's the discipline. Here's the discipline of it. He says, uh, he says you know, within a couple of weeks, you're going to wake up late, and uh, you're going to realize you were late, and you're going to brush your teeth and jump in your car and go flying out the door, and you're going to be driving along. And he says, and the, he says, you're going to realize you forgot to do the one most important thing I asked you to do. And he says, and when that happens, he says, the disease of addiction is going to speak to you. And he says, and it's going to say something like this. Can I want me to do the disease of addiction for you? Okay, okay, all right, y'all get real quiet. I'll do the, I'll be the, I'll be the disease of addiction. This is my favorite part. Okay, so I've realized I've forgotten to do the one most important thing, and here's what I hear. Dummy. You can't even do the simplest thing. Man asks you to do one thing, and you can't even do that. Well, you've already screwed it up. This ain't going to work for you. You might as well quit. Might as well quit. Might as well quit. How many of us have heard the disease of addiction? Don't go telling nobody we hear voices. That's our secret. Okay. He says, when you hear that voice, he says, I want you to pull off, find you a bathroom, Go into the stall, drop to your knees, and I want you to say right there, God, please help me stay sober today. Can you do that? I said, reluctantly. <laughs> Just like he was Notre Dame or something. Two weeks, I think, to the moment that he told me that. I was driving along and realized I'd forgotten to do the one most important thing he had told me to do. Just like he said, the disease of addiction spoke to me. I'm not going to tell you what it said. It was not pleasant. And I looked up and I saw Wendy's with the pigtail. Wendy's. I remember it like it happened this morning. I pulled over and I went in the side door. I looked to my right. And there was the bathroom. And I went in the bathroom and there wasn't nobody in there, thank goodness. And I went into the stall. I closed the door and I dropped to my knees. And I said, God, please help me stay sober today. And I said, and please help me remember to do this at home because this is disgusting. I got up and I washed my hands. <laughs> and, I, and I got out in my car and I, I, I drove on and I got on the phone and I called my sponsor and I said, you were right. I forgot. And I, but I, I found a bathroom and I said the prayer and he said, it sounds like, it sounds like you don't ever want to use or act out again. You hear what I'm saying? Yeah. Are we willing to go to any length? Yes. Yeah. What are we willing to do? Are we really willing to do this thing no matter what? Yeah. I got a call from one of our clients who had, uh, who had left and was on his way transitioning home. And I didn't get to take the call, but he left me a message. 
and I'll never forget it. He said, it got this message, hey, it's me, I'm on my way home, thank you so much for all your help. Hey, I'm changing planes and I just wanted you to know the Atlanta airport's got lots of bathrooms. <laughs> Isn't that great? I, I got a hold of him and told him that, and I told him just the way my sponsor told me, it sounds like you don't ever want to use or act out again. How about that? Y'all want to do the second step? Are you willing? Okay. All right. Well, you know, step two is that we're going we're gonna to come to believe there's something that could, could help us. Um, and, 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 you know, there, it's, and it, kind of, it represents a, a lack of power. Does that, do you all agree with that? And it, the, the book discusses that on page 45. So flip over to page 45, and this is going to be the second step discussion. You see where it says, this is going to be the first full paragraph, page 45. See where it says lack of power? Okay, Mr. Town? Lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how are we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. That means we have written a book which we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, of course, that we are going to talk about God. You know, some of us kind of get hung up on this thing. You know, I, I was trying to figure out what the rooms of recovery was. You know, all this reality and all this talk of spirituality. I realized that my meetings were something like Sunday school meets the TV show Cops. <laughs> it was spiritual, but people are getting shot at. <laughs> And if you get caught up on the word God, you know, it's comforting to me to be pointed out by my sponsor that the book uses a whole bunch of terms to describe the higher power. The book uses the terms creative intelligence, universal mind, spirit of the universe, great reality. And in reality, we're actually able to make this up to be anything we want and can use any terminology we're comfortable with. So if the term God isn't something that you connect with, for heaven's sakes, make up something else because it just doesn't matter. I remember struggling with this a bit, and my sponsor said, well, if you're having trouble with that higher power stuff, he says, why don't you borrow mine? <laughs> I said, you can do that? <laughs> he says, oh yeah, I have it under authority that mine's big enough for the two of us. <laughs> I said, I'll take it. <laughs> so the question, though, bears out, where if there's a, some kind of power out there that could help me, where the heck is it, right? Where is this power? Answers that question on page 55. Flip over to page 55. Find the second full paragraph. You see where it says actually? Start highlighting there. Actually, we were fooling ourselves. For deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there, 
He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. That's a money line. That's, that's one to circle. Deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. We can only clear the ground a bit. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself... Boy, that's another good one. Search diligently within yourself. Oh, boy. If you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. Yeah, and you know what this reminds me of? got to thinking about it one day, and I realized this reminds me of The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> How many of you saw the movie The Wizard of Oz? Okay, well, for those of you that haven't, I'll summarize it for you. <laughs> Dorothy comes from a deeply disturbed home. <laughs> Apparently addiction present. She's unhappy with her chores. She's just dissatisfied with, well, it's Kansas, for crying out loud. She just wants, yeah, it could be worse, could be Hattiesburg. She, 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 she just wants out. In the middle of a terrible storm, she leaves home and joins a gang. Not a big gang, but a gang nonetheless. Because you know how I know it's a gang? The first thing they do is do some vandalism. They steal some fruit. They run off and find some poppies. They chop them up, dry them out, smoke them, and pass out in a field. They start totally tweaking. They see trees like talking to them, throwing things at them. They see monkeys flying around. At the end of the movie, they wind up in a crack house. And they see this woman dissolve in front of them. They're totally freaked out. They have PTSD, and they have to go see the good therapist for EMDR. <laughs> Y'all saw the movie, right? At the end of the movie, Dorothy is doing a session with her therapist, the good therapist. And so Dorothy says, I just want to go home. I just want to get out of treatment. <laughs> this is awful. The good therapist says, Oh, well, you could have gone home anytime you wanted to. Dorothy gets pissed. Toto almost bites her. <laughs> the codependent scarecrow. As if Dorothy's gone mute, steps in front of her and says, Why didn't you tell her? The therapist was so well-trained that she doesn't even acknowledge the existence of the scarecrow. However, she answers the very valid question of why didn't you tell her directly to Dorothy? And she says, oh, if I'd have told you, you wouldn't have believed me. Isn't that a great line? Here's the irony. The power that I needed to solve the greatest problem I ever had in my life, bar none, I carried it into the treatment center with me. It had been with me the whole time. 
It was just buried in the last place I would have ever thought to look right in my own heart. Because addiction shuts us off from matters of the heart. I couldn't be in touch with it. I had to be withdrawn. I had to be taken through the steps so that my heart could be softened, so that I could get in touch again with my true inner self, the higher power that had been with me all along. How about that? Now, what if, though, some of us struggle with belief and have trouble with belief? And that's very valid to say, I'm just not sure how to believe. My sponsor said, turn to page 46. What if you're having trouble with belief? What if you don't believe? Page 46. Page 46, the first full paragraph in the middle of the page and the third sentence. Do you see where it says, we found? Do you see that? We found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results even though it was impossible for any of us to folly, define, or comprehend that power, which is God. Yeah, so my sponsor said, in order to take the second step, you don't got to believe. All you got to do is be willing to believe. And I quite naturally said, well, okay, how do you be willing to believe? He says, oh, he said, that's easy. He said, do you believe that I believe? You know, here he was, 17 years sober at the time, taking up his Saturday for nothing to take me through the steps. And he's asking me if I believe that he believes. This is why I think sponsorship, one of the reasons sponsorship is so critical. I had somebody that came through our programs ask me a brilliant question one time. And this is legit. He said, I I really don't understand. He says, I've got an attorney. I've got a banker, I've got a, I've got a business manager, I have a priest, why do I need a sponsor? That's a great question. And he told me a year later that what I said to him was, I said, oh, because everybody needs a volunteer in their life. Somebody who's not on the payroll, right? so that you can't question their motives, right, of what they're telling you. It's, I call it the crisis of belief. This is why sponsorship is so important. Why is this person spending their time for nothing to help me? I mean, they're not even getting a set of steak knives out of this deal. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And here they are helping me. Well, it's a crisis. It gives me a crisis. What's the motivation? This, whoever it is, they got to believe. They must believe, or they would not be wasting their time trying to help me. They must believe this works. So if you're having trouble with belief, on the second step, I would say, do you believe that I believe? Do you guys want to take the second step? Let's do it right now. Turn to page 47. The instructions are in the book. It's the second paragraph on page 47. When therefore we speak of God... No, no, no. This is page 47. It's the second paragraph. We needed to ask ourselves, right? But one short question. 
Page 47. Oh, you're down. Okay. Uh, we need to ask ourselves one short question. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that there is a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say that he does believe, or is willing to believe, he emphatically, uh, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. Do you want to build a cornerstone right now? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to ask you the second step question. Do you now believe, or do you believe that I believe, that there's a power greater than you? What's your answer? Yes. Yes. Everybody that said yes just took the second step, and nothing more is required. Ta-da! Give yourselves a big hand. You just took the second step. It's a big deal. We're on a roll now. You want to take the third step? All right. So the third step represents, you know, that we're going to surrender to this power. And so the opposite of doing that would be a life run on self-will. Does that make sense? Let's look at that on page 60. Flip over to page 60. Find the last paragraph on page 60. You see where it says the first requirement? Start highlighting there as Tao reads to us. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yeah. oh my. Let me reframe it for us. Haven't each of us, at some time or other, tried to convince people around us that they would be better off if they just did things our way? Oh, like, like this morning. Yeah, like, like 10 minutes ago, I think. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, attempting to control other people is one of the characteristics of selfishness. Make sense? And it's this selfishness that blocks us. It's one of the things that blocks us from the power to get better. And the book discusses that on page 62. Page 62, first full paragraph. This is one of the highlightable passages. And Tao's going to read it to us. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that, we think, is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self which later put us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic or addicted person is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics or addicts must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible, and there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. All right, jump down to the next paragraph, and this is what it says. This is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, 
God was going to be our director. Okay, jump down two lines and start highlighting with most good ideas. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arc through which we through which we passed to freedom. Top of page 63. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Jump down to the next paragraph. Everybody, what does it say? Guess where you are. You're now at step three. Step three is a prayer. Step three is a prayer that we say together. I was, I was at this place with my sponsor, and he said, do you want to take the, se- the third step with me right here, right now? And I said, am I ready? He said, yeah, you're ready. He opened the book. He spun it around. He pointed to this place, and he said, say this with me out loud. And I offer you guys the same thing. If you would like to take the step three with me right here, right now, the same way I did with my sponsor, say this with me out loud where it says, God, I offer myself to thee, all of us together. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, and make it over them, and bear witness to those who have been helped by my power, my love, and my very life. And I will always. Everybody that said that just took the third step and nothing more is required, give yourselves a big hand. This is a huge day. You guys just did the first three steps in about an hour. I was a slow study. It took me about an hour and a half. But no kidding, I did the first three steps in about an hour and a half with my sponsor. Uh, I got out of, well, I went into a little two-week jitter joint uh, on June the 14th, 2004. I was there for about two weeks, got out. Within a couple of weeks, I was doing steps with my sponsor. I did the steps, the first three steps in about an hour uh, and a half. And, uh, and I hadn't had the need to take a drug take a drink, act out, or marry a stranger. That was a big one for me. I was like, marry strangers. I guess I'm the only one. Anybody, anybody else marry strangers? It needs its own 12-step fellowship. You and I, will write the big book together. Me, we're gonna, I'll see you at the break. Okay, well, this is a big day. You guys have been so great. I'm so proud of you. This, you're working so hard. Listen, now we're gonna do an inventory, but first I offer... Let's take a biology break, you know, take about a 10-minute break, and then come back, and we'll do an inventory together. Are y'all having a good time? Give yourselves one more big hand.